So I recently sold my Jeep to CarMax, which is why we're asking for trailer volunteers, by the way. Uh, but what you do, it actually was a quite easy experience. You book an appointment, uh, you show up with your car, you sit in their lounge for a few minutes, you drink their watered-down coffee, and then uh, the buyer invites you into his cubicle, and he wants me to tell him about my car. So I give him the make, the model, the year, the mileage, the color, just which was very hard to define. Was it green? Was it blue? Was it green-blue? I don't know. Did the best I could. And then he wants to know the condition of my car. Now, some people in my life who know me well have called me scrupulous. And they're probably right. So I told him everything. I told them everything I knew that was wrong with this Jeep. And there came a point where the buyer was like, dude, you do not have to be that honest. <laughs> We're talking used car here. It's just going to the auction, man. Come on. Chill out. And when I drove home, I actually had this moral crisis because I forgot to tell him that the CD player didn't work. <laughs> so I think I did go overboard. I really do. But here's why. Here's why. Uh, I imagine the person who bought my car driving home, popping in their favorite CD and not hearing it, and then them thinking they got duped. That's what I imagined in my, in my mind. I, that, that image sort of built up. And, and perhaps I'm sensitive to that image just because I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. And I've encountered so many people, uh, something like this. Someone will decide to follow Jesus because somebody said, this is what following Jesus is like. And then when they encounter hardship, they say, I feel duped. When you told me about discipleship, you did not tell me the CD player didn't work. You know, you didn't tell me there's suffering. You didn't tell me there was hardship. You told me it was all good. It was all easy. It was better. And the hardship you ignored. And so we have what I could call the discipleship dupe. Now you might be asking this morning, uh, why did I lose my job when I started praying more, God? You might be asking God, why did my dad die when I decided to follow you, Jesus? You might be asking yourself, why did I get depressed the minute I decided to really open up to your body, to your church, Jesus? So it would be tempting to say to God, you duped me. But the Bible actually prepares us for hardship in the path of Jesus. And we see two unexpected hardships in our passage this morning. And John is recording real history. And yet John is also remembering real history many, many decades after it happened. And so what he's doing as a pastor is he's telling the earliest church community who knew suffering well, hey, this happened with Jesus, and let me just tell you how it applies to your exact situation today. And so if you're asking those questions... What happened in the passage we just heard has everything to do with your hardship right now. Everything. John meant it that way. He really did. And what are those two unexpected hardships in the text that we just read? Well, the first is this. The disciples experienced unexpected distance from Jesus. 
Verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now listen, it says, it was now dark, hold on to that word dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Jesus wasn't there. So there's darkness and distance. And and look, John is not just recording facts. John is a pastor poet. And every time you hear the word dark in the Gospel of John, your ears should perk up and you should say, what is John saying? And almost always, darkness means so much more than just absence of the sun. So John is telling us there is darkness in the path with Jesus and there is distance. Distance and darkness have been two unwelcome friends to many disciples across the ages. John just names it. Okay, there's another unexpected danger or an unexpected sort of hardship with Jesus and it's danger. Okay, so if the first is distance, the second is danger. Now look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee is famous for these unexpected, out of nowhere squalls or storms. I had the opportunity to actually be on the Sea of Galilee with my dad a few years ago, and we actually encountered something to this degree. In the morning, we went out on this motorboat that played cheesy Christian music, and and, and it was calm as glass. I was like, turn that stuff off. We're on the Sea of Galilee. But uh, it was like glass. And then later that afternoon, you saw whitecaps on the thing. Like that. And it's partly because the Sea of Galilee exists in a bowl 600 feet below sea level. And winds can sort of sweep down into there and whip up the waters, uh, cool air, interacting with hot air. And I'm not a meteorologist, but that's what the commentaries say. Point is, the disciples not only experienced distance from Jesus, they experienced unexpected danger with Jesus as well. And so do we, don't we? Unexpected distance from Jesus, unexpected danger. I think it's best to just admit it. Following Jesus is hard. But we need to press deeper into this text. Because Jesus is not, hear this, in the business of disappointing his disciples. There's a difference between Jesus... And the path with Jesus being hard and Jesus simply being a sadist. No, no, no. Jesus presents himself in a different way in this passage. He actually enters into the distance. He actually enters into the danger in ways only Jesus can. And I hope would provide hope for you this morning. So how does he do it? How does he answer these difficulties? Well, for the distance. He loves you in the distance. That's, that's just what we see in this text. When Jesus feels distant, he is not as far away as you think he is. That's the truth of the matter. I mean, Mark, in the same episode, Mark, in his gospel, when he describes the distance of Jesus, he adds a detail. Do you remember what it is? He says Jesus was praying. He was praying. And why was he praying? 
Well, if you look at our text and you go to the verse before our section, which is verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And why would a group of people want to make him king? Well, he had just done the feeding of the 5,000. They said, this is the expected one. This is the Messiah. This is the king after David. Because he's doing what only Moses experienced when Moses was in the wilderness. And therefore, they're like, let's make him king. Let's make him Messiah. Let's raise him up. Let's give him his throne. Let's build up an army. Let's go. Let's take down the Roman Empire. And let's be who God promised us to be. The land is ours. We deserve it. Let's take it. That's what they were thinking. And so they were raising Jesus up as king. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said, no, I am not bypassing the cross to become your king. And so he gets out of temptation and he prays. He contends with God for your salvation. And so he's distant, yes. But he is nearer than you realize. He loves you in the distance. Even today, Jesus might feel distant to you, but the truth is he's contending for your salvation every single second of your life. Uh, So one of my favorite poems is by Robert Hayden, and it's called Those Winter Sundays. I want you to listen. It's three stanzas. Those Winter Sundays. It's a son who's kind of remembering his father from his youth. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. He's making a fire. No one ever thanked him. (laughs) I'd I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. I'd hear the cold splintering and breaking. And when the rooms were warm, he'd call. And slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? The boy is sleeping, and the father is driving the cold out of the house, polishing the shoes. And at the end of his life, the boy says, as he himself is probably a father, he says, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And Jesus on the mountain, I think of him when I hear that poem. He is contending for us. He may feel distant. He may feel removed. He is contending for you. So two things. Distance is not desertion. What do we know Jesus is doing right now, even though we don't see him? There's a lot that is mysterious in hardship. There's a lot we don't understand in hardship, so we ought to probably cling to the things that are clear in the word. And here's what's true. There's a lot that's true. I'll just draw out three. Number one, Jesus is ruling the cosmos for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26 says this, For he must reign, Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is ruling. He is reigning. And he is defeating his enemies and your enemies as well. And that last enemy is death. 
That's what he's doing right now as we speak. As we speak, Jesus is praying for you. So Hebrews 7 says, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Do you know what intercessory prayer is? It's when somebody is praying for you. Well, Hebrews tells us Jesus is always doing intercessory prayer. Always. You know, sometimes you say to your friend, I'll pray for that. And in your best moments, you actually do. And you do in that moment. Jesus is not doing it in punctual, oh, I'll just do it if I remember. No, Jesus is intercessing all of the time for you. Every minute of your life, every moment of your life, every nanosecond of your life. He is praying for you. He is lifting you up to his father's ear and his father is listening. So he's praying for you. And if Jesus is contending for his disciples in this text, why, why wouldn't he still be contending for you today? What else is Jesus doing? He's advocating for you. Hebrews says in chapter 9, he says that Jesus is appearing in the presence of God in our behalf. What that means is that he is is presenting himself. He's standing before God and he's saying, I am, I am uh, my people, my sheep. I am their representative. I am, to use a big word, their propitiation, which means I absorbed the due just wrath that our sins deserve. And I'm standing in the presence of God for them. I am advocating for them. He may feel distant, but he is not. Do you see it? He is not. He is with you. He's nearer than you realize. Distance is not desertion. He sent his Holy Spirit. And he told his disciples, it is better that I depart and go with the Father in the ascension so that you could now have the power of the Holy Spirit. In a moment, we'll come to the table. And I know sometimes Jesus feels distant, but this is why he gave us the table so that we could come and as as as. You know, as tactile as the bread is on our mouth and the wine as we smell it, to that same extent the scriptures promise that Jesus is here now with you and near to you. That's what this is for. That's what it's for. Okay, so distance is not desertion. I would say this too, this text I think presses us to understand that distance is not wasted. The distance we feel with Jesus uh, is not always bad, is what I want to say. Uh, I would say even the distance and the darkness combined are two qualities of what John of the Cross many, many centuries ago described as the dark night of the soul. A counseling professor at Western Seminary says that there are three things that are true about these dark nights. And the first one is a very important caveat, which I think needs to be said. He says, first, they are usually both spiritual and psychological. Uh, Mind and soul and body. Our bodies are broken, you know. Our brains are broken, you know. So he quotes, he says this, quote, Often psychologists see depression merely as a neurochemical problem that needs to be fixed. And then oftentimes, uh, pastors spiritualize psychological maladies that may require further expertise. We need each other, and God gave us bodies, and so pastors like me need to become better at saying, why don't we see if this requires more expertise with with a counselor? And counselors need to become better at saying, maybe there's more going on in your life. 
than chemical reactions. It's a both and, and we both need to get better at it. That's the first thing. More to the, more to the text here, though, are, is a very interesting uh, reality that this professor brings out. This is, a, this is the first one. Dark nights provoke deep questions. He calls it, quote, the difficult invasion of God's astringent grace that opens us to new realms of spiritual experience. So that's what happens in distance and darkness. It provokes deep questions. Number two, dark nights provide opportunities for growth. They really do. He writes, quote, the purpose of the dark night, of course, is to strip us of our futile attempts to find God on our own terms. And then awaken us to a much simpler desire for intimacy with God. I was listening to one of the best records of all time. Fight me about it. Ryan. Um, sorry, Ryan Adams, not Brian. Ryan. Ryan Adams in the Cardinals. Cardinalology. Or cold roses, I'm sorry. Boy, if I love it so much, I should know about it. Um, and, and there's a line in there. He says, I can never get close enough to you. I can never get close enough to you. And he repeats it over and over and over and over again. And when I hear that, that's the cry of my heart towards Jesus. I can never get close enough to you. And a dark night distance and darkness provokes that and amplifies that. That simple desire to be with Jesus. So... Darkness and distance is not always bad, is what I'm trying to say. There was obviously a purpose for it in the life of these disciples. And it might be true for you as well. Okay, so that's how Jesus loves us in the distance. How does he love us in the danger? Well, Jesus answers the disciples in unexpected danger uh, while they were journeying with him. And verse 18 describes the danger. We already learned about it. The storm in the darkness. They were on a boat, and it got dark, and the storm hit. Now, I have an aversion to amusement parks. Uh, do you know this about me? I, generally speaking, rides, I don't like them. I don't like any kind of ride. Um, and so I, I, try to, I try to do some, like, thinking back to why that might be. And I have, I have a good candidate. You want to hear it? When I was a kid, we lived in Southern California, my family. And we went to Disneyland. And there's a ride at Disneyland called the Pirates of the Caribbean. Have you been on this? You're on a boat, and then it takes you through some dark rooms. And I'm talking like pitch black rooms. And I remember being a little kid, and the fact that you're on a boat, and it's dark. There's water. Now, I knew the water was like, what, one foot deep? And you're on a track? You know what I mean? You're like literally on a track with some water. But still, the concept of being on a boat in pitch black freaked me out. Still does. Water and darkness? No. Okay, so so that's what's happening in this text to such a greater extent. I mean, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have scuba diving gear. In the ancient Near East, they didn't know what was going on at the furthest depths of this ocean or these seas like we do. All they did was fished and pulled out some stuff and occasionally got on boats. But even, even, uh, even these folks, as they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they too had a terror of the water. Now add night to that, and you get the picture. And so when Jesus approaches them in the middle of the thing, right, they appropriately, I think, cry out, it's a ghost. Now they don't do it in John's text, but they do it in the other texts. 
They say, it's a ghost. Well, yeah. Yeah, what else, right? They are terrified of the thing, to be exact. And then they see somebody walking on it. That's scary. Okay, So they're, they're, they're freaking out. But Jesus doesn't leave them in their danger. Okay, So in the ancient Near East, they could not control the water. That was really the source of their fear. They couldn't control it. And we pretend we can control it today, but we still can't. Jesus doesn't just leave them in this danger. He loves them, and he does it in three ways. He walks to them. This may be Captain Obvious, but he pursues his disciples in the storm. He walks to them. Think about it. They're dark. They're miles from the shore in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus walks to them. But Jesus does something else. Some scholars would say that Jesus must have walked on the the shore of the sea and met them. Uh, So they say on the sea. That that must be a mistranslation. What I think it really means is by the sea. That's what a lot of people will say to get over the fact that he actually walked on the water. They'll say he obviously walked around the sea. No, no. He walked walked on the water. And here's why it's important that he walked on the water. Not necessarily to prove his divinity, although I think it does. What it does is it says so much more. Because Jesus, think about it, knew his Bible. Okay? He was, some would say, the word. But he knew his Bible. He read his Old Testament. And so he knew that Moses and Joshua both walked through water. God rescued them from slavery into freedom. And the way that he rescued his people out of slavery into freedom was by walking through the waves, walking through the water by God's power. He would also know Job chapter nine, verse eight, which says God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. He would know that verse. And so when he's walking on the water, not on the shore, when he's walking on the water, he is enacting these passages. He is saying. To his disciples, yeah, I know only God can walk on the water. Yeah, I know that that in in times past, the greatest salvation event that you know of was was me by my power walking through the water. And here I am. I am. I am. I am that God. Jesus says two words while he's walking on water. He says, I am. It says in your text, it is I, but it's ego a me. Those are two Greek words, I am. And this is how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He says, I am that I am. But be careful here, okay? Jesus doesn't say, I am, just to prove he's divine. He's saying so much more. He's saying, I am on the water. Remember? Jesus wants you to see that he is the new Moses, bringing the new exodus. He's leading the disciples to freedom from a greater Pharaoh. Not just imperial Rome, although that's true, but the greater Pharaoh that is Satan himself in our sin and death that follows. And like the first exodus, the journey is dangerous. Jesus knows that. But it's good. At breakfast, I asked my son um, what he was most afraid of. It's a good question to ask your child, by the way. And he said some things that were kind of like, I don't know. 
And then he finally goes, I know what I'm afraid of. Embarrassment. That's what he said. And I thought, that is a really good answer. That's a searching answer. I've done some research and I've learned that the two greatest fears is death and social death. Social death is embarrassment. Our two greatest fears. I told him about how scary the water was in the ancient Near East. I told him, imagine no submarines. Imagine no underwater cameras. Imagine no snorkels even. No goggles. How scary that would be to be on the water in the dark. Now, I hate swimming in open water. I love swimming in lanes and pools that have lanes because I can see like the tile work on the floor and there's a, there's a handy line that sort of helps you know exactly where you are and then there's like a little end uh, line that says, okay, flip now and then you hit this wall that's nice and secure and predictable and then you go the other way and repeat and you go the other way and repeat and you kind of do this kind of like water thing and it's very safe and predictable but the minute I go into open water, I start like breathing heavy And I get really scared. Why? Because my goggles can only see this far. And I know there's stuff down there. I don't know. Maybe it's looking at me and I just can't see it. Like that's where I'm at when I'm in open water. And I'm talking to Jude about this. And I'm like that fear of water. That fear of not being able to control how scary that would be. And I said, you know what? To the disciples at that moment, Jesus is saying with his body, I'm over that. Quite literally, I am over that. And I said to him, your embarrassment, when you feel embarrassed or you're afraid of being embarrassed, just just remember, Jesus is over that. He stands on that. He's Lord. What are you most afraid of? I'll tell you what I told him. Jesus is over that. He stands over that. Okay. Think about it. Jesus is the only one in existence who can say, do not be afraid to your greatest fear and have the authority to actually mean it. I can say to somebody, don't be afraid. And what usually is true in those moments is the person who's afraid thinks, you, you can, thank you for saying that. It shows that you care. Uh, but you don't understand what I'm up against. Okay, so what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus does. He knows what you're up against. And so when he says, don't be afraid, you can believe him. Some people say, don't be afraid, and they're just simply naive. They're simply naive or maybe even hurtful. They're saying, don't be afraid about something. And it's, it's conniving. That can't be Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what you're up against. And he can say, do not be afraid. And he alone, his authority, his lordship, he alone can say it. And it can be meaningful to you. And so I, I'm just here to say, he stands over your fear right now. He says to you, I don't say to you, he says to you, do not be afraid. I am. That's what he says. So I think this text would have you invite Jesus, as the disciples do, into your fear. 
You know, they invite him into the boat. And surrender to him. Lay down your rebel arms, all your defenses that you would have in your fear, and receive him. Invite him into the scariest place of your life. In the last Narnia book, The Last Battle, the dwarves are given a feast prepared by Aslan, but they don't see it. I don't know if you've read the book. They don't see it. They can't see the feast. If they would just open their eyes to Aslan, if they would just open their eyes to the feast, they would have it. And some of us, that's that's us right now. That's us right now. Uh, Stop trying to be safe on your own. Open your eyes to Jesus and rest. Ancient Christians would connect this passage and this final verse in our passage where it says they were glad to take him into the boat. They were glad to take him in and to, and to bring Jesus into his fears. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Ancient Christians would connect this verse to Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32. I'll read it out loud to close up. This is a psalm. This is the worship book of God's people of old. This is how it goes. Some went off to sea in ships. They would sing this. Plying the trade routes of the world. They too observed the Lord's power in action. His impressive works on the deepest seas. He spoke and the winds rose. Stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens. Plunged against the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and they staggered like drunkards and were at their wits end. Lord, help! They cried in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. Listen to this verse. Listen very carefully and hear it. Okay, hear it from God himself. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbor. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things that he has done for them. When you cry help, you bring Jesus into your fears. And then and only then will you experience harbor. This is the peace that transcends understanding that Paul said is yours in Christ. And so, Jesus, we ask for that peace now. In our distance from you, in our distress, in our darkness even, we cry help. And we give you praise for your harbor.